Hi, I'm Yusuf Hassan. And I'm Ahmed Solomon, and you're listening to Africa Aware, a podcast from the Africa programme at Chatham House. Welcome back to Africa Aware. On this episode, we'll be discussing Ethiopia-Sudan relations. And on this episode, I'm very lucky to be joined by my colleague, Ahmed Suleiman, Research Fellow for the Horn of Africa at the Africa Programme, to discuss this topic and the ACCEPT project that he's been working on alongside colleagues across Chatham House. Welcome to Africa Aware, Ahmed. Thank you, Yusuf, and it's great to be back on the pod. So could you please outline to our listeners what the ACCEPT project is and what it aims to achieve? Of course, I'd be, I'd be happy to. The Strand of Work, a program that we're we're working on across Chatham House, is is called the Cross Border Conflict Evidence Policy and Trends Project, which is snappily known as Accept. This research program brings together some of the, the the best experts across our Africa and Middle East North Africa programs, uh, as well as a number of other partners in in a research consortium to examine conflict-affected borderlands, how conflicts connect across those borders and uh, the drivers of violent and peaceful behaviour. The idea is to try and inform effective policy and programme responses. As we know, conflicts in Africa intersect uh, and this can be through flows of people interacting, through uh, licit and illicit resources uh, such as weapons or through commodities uh, and this creates an intricate cross-border conflict system in a number of places, knitting together the formal, informal, the licit and illicit in ways that uh, in sometimes empower armed actors, enmesh conflict with crime and violent extremism uh, and also can ensnare local communities. They make protracted national conflicts very much more difficult to resolve. And what we are seeing is a need for international conflict response to innovate, to meet the challenges of cross-border conflict. And that means transcending state-centric approaches to tackling transnational networks that drive and sustain conflict and support communities who are trying to cope with protracted crises in a number of different areas. In particular, I myself am working on a case study on uh, a number of areas of Sudan's borderlands, uh, examining transnational conflict supply chains related to commodities along different borders that Sudan has with neighbouring countries, namely looking at Sudan's border with Libya, as well as looking at eastern Sudan and the border with northwestern Ethiopia. And we'll be looking at different types of resources and commodities in each of those regions. Uh, And the research is intended to explore how conflict dynamics and economic factors are shaping Uh, supply chains across the borders, including how these are exploited by conflict actors, how they shape resilience and and people's ability to cope, and how they intersect with a number of different economic activities, as I mentioned, on the licit side as well as the illicit side. Ahmed, thank you so much for that comprehensive overview on the Accept project and, and some of your aims with regards to the findings you hope to publish over the coming years. The question I'll ask you, of course, as the Horn of Africa Research Fellow at the Africa Programme, someone working so closely on the project itself, what are some of the national macro 
ideas or, or areas of focus that you really want to explore during the project? And what can you see, especially with regard to the Ethiopia-Sudan relationship and its current state? I guess as we start to frame the research, we've been doing some scoping and, and beginning our thinking on, on some of the dynamics in and across the countries that we're working on in the Horn. Uh, one of those is to, to examine the relationship between Sudan and Ethiopia, where we've seen that the, the relations between the two countries have been damaged uh, recently in, in the last couple of years uh, by a number of issues which stem from, I think, the context of quite rocky political transitions underway in both countries, particularly over the last five years. I mean, we've seen in Ethiopia, that in northern Ethiopia, there has been conflict which has driven... Uh, the influx of tens of thousands of refugees into Sudan and there's uh, a situation where some of those refugees potentially could be armed and, and kind of reigniting into the conflict. There are tensions linked to the use uh, and appropriation of land, especially agricultural land in Al-Fashiga in the east of Sudan uh, and, and you know, the use of that land, the markets that are, that are involved, which, you know, used to be part of quite a, a soft border. Now we're seeing a re-demarcation, if you will, of the boundary line physically through through force between southeastern Sudan and northwestern Ethiopia. These developments have added new dimensions to the fraught negotiations between Ethiopia, Sudan and, and as well Egypt relating to the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, the GERD, and uh, ongoing issues around water usage on the Nile. It's also inflamed distrust amongst respective administrations over alleged support for opposition groups in each other's territories. So there's quite a lot of dynamics that are, that are at play, in particular when we're looking even at one border area and one relationship between Sudan and Ethiopia, you know, two countries who arguably, uh, you know, their transitions play a big part in shaping the stability uh, and trajectory of the Horn of Africa region. Thank you so much for, for going into some of those macro trends. To go into more specifics, Ahmed, what do you see as the, as the major issues, you know, framing the, the Sudan-Ethiopia relationship? And what does it look like in, in the coming years? As you've mentioned, the last five years has been difficult for both countries as they go through transitions. What are those issues? I mean, what we're seeing is, I mentioned some of the shared issues, such as the Al-Fashiga disputes over territory and land, tensions over the GERD. But for, for neighbouring countries, there is a tendency to think about Ethiopia and, and, and Sudan quite separately, even, you know, they're, they're quite closely aligned. There are similarities and challenges that both countries are facing and, and, you know, you can point to reasons for that and there are clear commonalities. I mean, both countries have had peripheral challenges or subnational challenges where there have been grievances that have been reared at regional level that have been brought to the, to the national capitals and the national level. Both have recently seen the decline and, and resurgence of, to some extent and to varying extent, of previous regimes and regime figures. In Ethiopia and Sudan, there's also a dimension of renewed political leadership 
particularly when you think about the transitional government in Sudan and the emergence of a, a, of a new civilian administration there, which is still being contested, but also the emergence of new, significant new military figures when we're talking about General Burhan. But in particular, think about the number number two in, in, in the military, uh, General Hemeti. And, and in Ethiopia, when we're considering that, you know, the rise of Abiy Ahmed and, and, and his government in, in Ethiopia. So you see there's quite a lot of, of commonality there. Historically, of course, Ethiopia has been the provider of security in the greater Horn of Africa region. But we see this role changing because of the internal dynamics and the conflict within Ethiopia and its concentration internally. Sudan is continuing to try and find its way in terms of the role that it could play in the region. But it, of course, Sudan is a country that bridges not only many neighboring countries, I think seven, but it also bridges several different regions, North Africa, you know, uh, the Arabian Gulf, the Sahel, uh, the Horn of Africa and East Africa in particular. So I think what we see here is that these dynamics are affecting relations between the two countries. Uh, the reorientation that we're seeing has also changed the nature of the regional blog IGAD and, and the regional bloc's chairmanship has shifted over to Sudan, but there, there have clearly been very huge difficulties in, in that shift uh, and Sudan's ability to, again, given the internal issues in the country, to, to work on regional issues has been, has been limited. I think changes in both countries are also subject to shifts in, within the international community, so we see that in, in both the U.S. relationship with Sudan, but also the U.S. relationship with Ethiopia and how that has shifted, how it has fluctuated and ebbed between positive and negative uh, in the Sudanese case and similar uh, in the Ethiopian case as well. And it's, of course, interesting also to consider the interests of other countries that are engaged in the region, China very heavily, a number of the countries in the Arabian Gulf, you know, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and the role of those countries. And when we're thinking about that, we're also thinking about the economies of the countries, which are having seen internal conflict are really suffering and this is you know partly related to infrastructure to global circumstances including covid including climactic factors but that impacts relations as well thank you so much for the really really interesting insights you had there regarding the specific issues framing the sudan ethiopia relationship we are of course a policy institute and we want policy oriented outcomes that are of course beneficial for citizens in both countries the question I have for you then is, what do you believe the policy changes necessary on the ground are to see that benefit for those citizens? Uh, it's a good question, Yusuf. And I think at this really critical juncture of, in the transitions of, of both of these hugely influential countries in the region, I think it's really important that you know, there's a lot of focus on how hostilities can be de-escalated and sustainable compromises reached and, and, and of course, relations re restored. I think thinking through that with, in terms of the regional order is, is, is important. But there is a lack of coherence as to what the goals should be when approaching that and what the objectives should be of policy interventions. I think there's also not really a common understanding of, of how to define peace between Ethiopia and, and Sudan. I think that's 
including within Ethiopia and Sudan, as well as between the two countries. So I think before we kind of try to frame what the policy and levers can be to, to try and reach a settlement between the two countries or to improve relations between the two countries on a variety of issues, I think there needs to be more agreement or more work done into thinking about what a settlement could look like. And it's increasingly clear to me that centering of, of any of solutions needs to come from Ethiopia and Sudan, you know, from within those countries. That's at the national level, that's particularly at the regional level. And we're talking about a range of different actors, you know, governmental, uh, business community, civil society as well, that need to be engaged in this. Uh, and, and equally, what happens in Ethiopia and Sudan certainly has regional and global implications. Uh, it requires political leadership. It requires partnership from the international community and partners who are invested in, in, in the region and in Ethiopia and Sudan. To date, this has been somewhat lacking, I would say. And also, I think as, as, as a final point, there is a tendency to see economic realities as separate to political processes. And really, these should be linked. The importance of the region and countries and localities, economic futures and political futures are intertwined. Integrating these approaches, I think, is, is vital to any sustainable regional and international responses and, and ensuring that local communities are able to benefit from any uh, sustainable political arrangements or settlements that are reached. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that really useful overview on the policy interventions that could be made. This is, of course, all long-term thinking. Ahmed, you'll be joining me for my other interviews during this episode. So thank you for now. Uh, thank you, Yusuf, and, and looking forward to exploring this issue further. For our first interview, we spoke to Khulud Khair, who is a managing partner of Inside Strategy Partners, a think and do tank in Khartoum, Sudan, that works on transitional policy priority areas. Khulud also hosts and co-produces Spotlight 249, Sudan's first English language political discussion and debate show aimed at young Sudanese people. Khulud has over a decade's experience in research and programming and policy in Sudan and across the Horn of Africa. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Khulud. Thank you for having me. Now, to go directly into the questions that we've prepared for you, there have been a steady deterioration in relations between Sudan and Ethiopia in the last two years. Many state this is largely due to transitional dynamics in both countries, with nascent leaderships increasingly focused on internal concerns and issues. How has this decline in relations been shaped by the current political dynamics in Sudan? I think it's important to point out that in Khartoum, there's not one but two nodes of leadership. You have General Burhan, who's the head of the Sudan Armed Forces, being one, and then General Hemeti, who's the head of the Rapid Support Forces, being the other. They are both in the Sovereign Council, which took over the entirety of government after the 25th of October coup last year. And after this coup, which saw them wrest power away from the civilian components of the transitional government, they have largely pursued different foreign policies in earnest. It is Burhan's troops that were involved in the clashes with the Amhara, not the RSF. And while General Burhan, who is the number one in the, in the regime, 
maintains closer ties with Egypt, his number two has been courting Addis. And neither general has a steadfast domestic constituency, which means that foreign relations become key drivers of their diverging consolidation plans in Sudan following the coup. But both generals are incredibly dependent on their international allies or supporters. And recently, the Gulf dynamics have also become very key to not just issues within Sudan, but issues between Sudan and Ethiopia, with the Gulf um, being sort of a patron for leaders in both countries. In Sudan in particular, the very acute economic issues have led the regime to once again, very much um, like under Bashir, to court UAE in particular, as well as Saudi, for economic support. Burhan and Hemeti are sort of fair-weather friends in a way. They have been brought together by their joint immediate interests in evading transitional justice in evading economic accountability and evading security sector reform or SSR. But beyond that, they don't have much um, mutual interest. And part of the reason for that is because they are planning on consolidating this coup in very different ways. For Hemeti, he much prefers a smaller privatized state where he's able to install allies in different parts of the country and have a very transactional economic relationship with them. Whereas for Burhan, he relies on a much more expensive, much broader constituency as a base, which is why he has gotten in bed with the Islamists. Of course, this has proven to be quite unpopular with his Arab allies, as they themselves have their own problems with um, the Muslim Brotherhood and the Islamists writ large. What this means is that for Burhan, it's more expensive to consolidate his post-coup regime, which is why he has reached out to the Arab allies quite recently in a tour of the UAE, Saudi, and Egypt, as well as Chad. But for Hemeti, his interest in the gold sector and how much of that actually exists outside of the formal economy has meant that he is more financially independent. And so he can afford to court, in reality, just the one regional backer, which is the UAE. So what that looks like internally in Sudan is that Burhan's increased reliance on the Islamists has meant that he has had a lot of public ire directed in his direction. But people are concerned also about the ways in which Hemeti's economic enterprise has cut out effectively many elites, many traditional elites, but also many political elites. And so while, for example, rebel groups who are in a financial relationship with the regime tend to side mostly with Hemeti, who's a better sort of economic bet at the moment, political parties tend to side more with General Burhan. Of course, with the economy being the way it is, those kinds of considerations really sort of come to a head now that we have Ramadan and the dollar yo-yoing and not being able to create the right kind of environment for foreign direct investment and making the regime increasingly more reliant on bilateral funding from regional allies. Now, how this impacts Ethiopia is that Ethiopia has also had a lot of support from, of course, the UAE, particularly militarily. But at the same time, the generals in Khartoum have to mix loyalties or divided loyalties about 
how they see the UAE's role playing out in Ethiopia versus Egypt's interests in the region. There have been developments that suggest that the Arab axis from the Khartoum perspective, which is Egypt, the UAE and Saudi, have now diverging views, uh, increasingly diverging views on Sudan and Ethiopia. And it will be a challenge for the generals not just to balance the domestic interests that they have with uh, the civilians that they need to court or the civilians they, whose loyalty they need to buy, as well as with the competing interests of the international actors like the UAE and Egypt, in order to maximize the, the, the sort of investment that they have had in the coup so far. Thanks so much, Khaloud. Can I ask your thoughts on the implications of the impasse between Ethiopia and Sudan for peace and security, as well as development dynamics in in the broader Horn of Africa region and and Red Sea, of course, touching upon issues perhaps such as the Grand Renaissance Dam, its completion and and the fraught negotiations uh, and discussions around that, or the role of IGAD, uh, the regional bloc in responding to the region's challenges, which we've seen very much stymied by this fault line between Ethiopia and, and Sudan. Well, Ethiopia and Sudan have started another round of talks um, as of last month on the issues between them. The impasse is more of a stop-start. We have moments where we see glimmers of hope for a negotiation or mediation, and and sometimes we see moments where those tensions really come to a head. But in essence, the two countries are trying to figure out how to relate to each other in the post-Bashir, post-Mellas region. Um, There are those who think that destabilizing the region is a particular strategy of Eritrea, hoping to influence the region despite its pariah status. Uh, But regardless, there are several security issues in the region, not least the internal conflicts within the two countries, the war over federalism or centralism in Ethiopia, and the war to win the transition in Sudan. The Feshiga and GERD issues, as well as the influx, of course, of Tigrayan refugees into Sudan, add tensions to an already fragile relationship in a region of great change over the last decade. Sudan is surrounded by countries that are pretty much all undergoing some kind of transition or political change in leadership. And almost all of these changes have been bloody. It also sits in the confluence between the Horn of Africa, the Red Sea region and the Sahel, making any cross-border issue immediately relevant to a whole host of regional actors. With the regional organizations such as the AU and IGAD, they haven't thus far been able to sufficiently respond to these dynamics because they currently lack the internal cohesion to leverage sufficient influence on both Sudan and Ethiopia. IGAD in particular has been little more than an instrument, an extension of whichever country is at its head. Currently, that is Sudan. Even under the leadership of erstwhile Prime Minister Handok, Addis did not see IGAD as a plausible neutral mediator to the tensions. Now that Burhan is IGAD's ex-officio chair, as well as, of course, a party to the cross-border military clashes, there is even less scope for IGAD to play a mediation or de-escalation role. Despite having a chairperson in Musa Faki, who is very close to the generals in Khartoum, particularly the Sudan Armed Forces, the AU does have a window under the new leadership of Macky Sall, the president of Senegal, to bring new energy to the stalled talks, not just between Sudan and Ethiopia, but also by engaging Egypt too. 
Senegal's experience on sharing the resources of the Senegal River, for example, with Mauritania, as well as other experiences from West Africa and the Volta River Basin Initiative could provide useful lessons learned on this GERD case. But the political drivers, particularly in Addis and Cairo, where the GERD is seen as an existential issue for both countries, may require more concerted efforts and more international guarantors. And we're not quite seeing that take place within the current mediation context. And since you mentioned the need for there to be some form of a long-term solution to these challenges with the new leadership of, of course, the AU, what do you see as the solutions for narrowing the differences between Sudan and Ethiopia? Do you believe or envisage or see a possible return to a soft border agreement that can boost economic relations on both sides of the border, taking into account the key and, of course, very transparent shared interests of the people living in the area? The initial soft border during the Bashir Mellors years was a policy largely built on a quote-unquote gentleman's agreement, more than it was a sort of very robust legal agreement. And this meant that it had little longevity after the fall uh, of both of those leaders and is vulnerable to political changes in a region that's already very politically dynamic. It's quite clear that the GERD and Feshiga issues cannot be taken in isolation and cannot also be isolated from the political moment. This is usually where people look towards, you know, certainty through legal instruments, for example, arbitration and scrolling through hundred-year-old documents and such. Um, And some certainty may provide a good basis to build better longer-term policy, but focusing on water and resource governance in the future, rather than you know, confirming boundaries drawn up in the past, is probably more of a useful exercise. Going back to the, uh, the Volta Basin Initiative I mentioned before, between Ghana and Burkina Faso, could present a useful model for this. In the Volta Basin, partners worked with riparian states to improve water governance and water management practices, resulting in various multi-scale participatory governance frameworks for co-management of the basin's water resources, and then extending that also to improving livelihoods through riverbank protection schemes. In the Ethiopia-Sudan region, which is prone to the impact of climate change and food insecurity and poverty, a model that prioritizes environmental governance and social policy is a good one to adapt from. The communities living on the border have had centuries-long engagement. They intermarry, they cultivate land together. In essence, they coexist. But with drivers of conflict outside these communities, catalyzing existing tensions, resulting from, for example, banditry by the shifter bandits from the Amhara region into the Sudanese territory during harvest season, local disputes are taken out of the hands of the community. So local conflict prevention mechanisms are really important to prioritize as well. Shared interests are possible to recognize, but this requires intervening partners to be less predatory than they have been so far. Given what you've just outlined, I mean, what what role do you think there is for regional and, and, and perhaps international partners to provide support to both countries and, and in terms of moving things forward, perhaps helping to integrate economic approaches alongside some of the mediation efforts we're seeing in political solutions? For example, you you did 
talk earlier about the UAE's role in mediating uh, specifically on 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 Fashaga, but also on the Grand Renaissance Dam. Last year, I think the UAE's proposal for jointly developing the resources uh, of, of Fashaga were, were turned down by both sides. That seems to be on the table again. I mean, what do you make of this? Is there a role here in, in, in kind of bringing forth these economic approaches? And what do you see is perhaps some of the risks. I mean, for example, the UAE's very much engaged as, a, as an actor bilaterally in the region and, and, and alongside multi, some engaging with, with other bilateral actors as well, I would say. But but there is a notion that there is a limited understanding of the region and, and very much a transactional and securitized approach to, to these diplomatic efforts. What, what's your take on that? I agree. The old UAE plan was not great. It was not welcomed by all parties, including the communities at the border. Plan entailed not only guardianship from, or guaranteeship, I should say, from the UAE, which given how much influence in both Sudan and Ethiopia the UAE has makes some sense, but also that a large share of the land and its resources are then used by and owned by the UAE. The new plans need to put communities first, but considering that both regimes in Addis and Khartoum are looking for international and political and financial support, the terms of the agreement may not be in the two countries' favour, even at the state level, let alone at the community level. Currently, both Addis and Khartoum are desperately seeking international and mostly regional support that allows them to survive the current pressures put on them. And the UAE does provide that. And this means that the UAE understands that it has leverage over these countries. I wouldn't be surprised to see that new plans around al Feshiga, but also for Sudan around the privatization and sale of Port Sudan in the east on the Red Sea, would see more beneficial terms for the UAE than for Sudan compared to before. The issue with the UAE as a sort of a sole bilateral supporter of any initiative on the al Feshiga region is that the UAE mostly concerns itself with food security for itself and Red Sea security, and therefore sees this region mostly through a securitized lens. And so their plans are likely to gravitate around creating another linchpin to guarantee that security rather than having sort of the lens of mediation or or long-term successful coexistence. Both Sudan and Ethiopia as old empires have been undergoing processes of fragmentation. Two of the youngest countries in the world, South Sudan and Eritrea, broke away from this region. And both the regimes in both Sudan and Ethiopia would be careful not to recreate this fragmentation, even as other international or regional issues provide many drivers for continued fragmentation. I think the answer lies in some level of multilateral cohesion on this region. The international community needs to revise the ways in which it engages in the region. There are a plethora of Horn of Africa and Red Sea envoys. Recently, China too has appointed one. But the engagement of these envoys and the capitals behind them tend to focus on one country at a time, rather than formulating regional strategies for engagement. And this means that externally cultivating mutual opportunities between these countries can often be missing. But domestically too, civil society across these countries need to forge 
better relations between themselves in order to foster people-led engagement and cross-learning rather than having only state-to-state engagement guide the relations between the countries. That was a really, really fantastic and expansive answer like all of your others, Walud. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Moving on to our second interview, Abel Abate Demisi is an Associate Fellow of the Africa Programme and a researcher focusing on Ethiopia and the Horn of Africa region. Abel worked as a political advisor for the British Embassy in Addis Ababa from 2015 to 2019, and as a senior researcher and latterly Programme Head at the government-run think tank, the Ethiopian Foreign Relations and Strategic Studies Institute. Abel, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of Africa Aware. Thank you so much for having me, Yusuf. To go directly into it, in the introduction, myself and Ahmed had a brief discussion into the current dynamics, but we really want to have somewhat of a deep dive with yourself, focused on Ethiopia in particular. And actually, as someone who, of course, resides in the region and has worked in the region for a number of years, how has the recent political developments in Ethiopia and Sudan impacted relations between the two countries, particularly following the Tigray War since November 2020? Thank you so much, Yusuf. Uh, it's uh, an excellent question. As you know, Ethiopia and Sudan had uh, several years of long-standing relationships, and uh, the two countries enjoyed amicable relationship until the downfall of uh, Omar Hassan al-Bashir in Sudan. In fact, shortly after that, amicable relationship has has continued for some time, uh, and Prime Minister Abiy was considered as one of the most important mediators of the mediation between the military and the civilian opposition groups, but that didn't last long. And immediately after that, both countries start to have some serious crisis, internal crisis in the respective countries. And we also seen a spillover effect and impacting uh, the bilateral relationship. And I think, as you have pointed out, the Tigray war is the most important phenomena uh, in this situation. Following the Tigray war, uh, President, uh, Prime Minister Abi, there was a speculation that Prime Minister Abi has requested the Sudanese leadership to close borders, and even some speculation suggested that uh, he has also asked for the Sudanese authorities to contribute troops as part of his uh, what he called law and order mission to Sudan. But that didn't happen. In fact, uh, Sudan has in what Ethiopia described, started to encroach the contested border territories of al Fashaga region. Uh, as you might know, Yusuf, uh, the two countries share more than 740 kilometers of borderlands, and out of that, more than 260 kilometers is in al Fashaga region. And this region is known for its fertile arable land, and Ethiopia used to have millions of dollars every year through the export of oil seeds. So, that's what Ethiopia calls it an encroachment, according to at least uh, from the Ethiopia's government perspective, was uh, an opportunist by the Sudanese authorities to exploit the internal vulnerability in Ethiopia. And after that, the two countries have also uh, stopped seeing eye to eye on a number of issues, including uh, the Great Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, and which Sudan had strongly backing throughout the Al-Bashir period, but now that has changed. And Sudan is now pretty much 
critical of Ethiopia's position in every aspect of the negotiation when it comes to the Great Ethiopian Resistance Dam. And the other uh, thing I think uh, which we can uh, discuss a little bit further is the issue of refugees in both countries. And following the Tigray war, several thousands of Tigrayans in particular have fled to Sudan. And for the government, Addis uh, and the Amhara regional states, the TPLF have been actively recruiting from the refugees to go back and fight the regional states, the Amhara region, also the federal government, which Sudan strongly denies. So there are multiple factors that have contributed in dwindling leadership in both countries. But one thing that we cannot deny is both countries have long-standing relationship that has lasted actually for centuries. I think that that's a great point, Abel, that you make all round. Uh, one of the things I, I would probably add to that of significance on the on the Sudanese side is, of course, the October coup that took place in Sudan last year uh, with, the, with the military overthrowing the transitional government there. And I think those dynamics have also been very significant in, in the military wanting to reinforce its position. I think the, the border area with northwestern Ethiopia is uh, an area where the military has tried to buy some public sympathy as well uh, through its control of territory there, uh, particularly by the Sudanese armed forces. And that has, I think, also buttressed against its relationships with Ethiopia. As has, as Abel rightly mentioned, when the war began in the Tigray region, the efforts or the the offer by uh, Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok at that time and the Sudanese transitional government to mediate between the federal government in Ethiopia and uh, the, the you know the Tigrayan forces. So I, I, that was rebuffed quite strongly, as we understand, by by the federal government and Prime Minister Abiy, and I think that also led to a deterioration of of the relationship between the two countries even further. And that's when uh, in in the environment where you have a, a very recent change in the chairmanship of IGAD from Ethiopia to Sudan. So I think that, that that environment has also accelerated those tensions further. Abel, there's a question that comes to my mind about the dynamics in, in, in Western Tigray or the, the Walkite region, depending on how you would categorize it and how that can lead to further tensions between Ethiopia and Sudan. Yes, that is, I think, uh, one of the most defining areas, uh, at least uh, for the time being, when it comes to the relationship between the two countries. The Western Tigray or Welkite, depending on ask, is a very important area, not only when it comes to resource uh, and economic aspects, but also now recently from the military aspect as well. For Tigrayans, Western Tigray is considered as one the most safe supply routes, be it for humanitarian or other things that they can rely on. And they think that is uh, their land that has been taken away through force. And uh, whereas for Amharas, Western Tigray was snatched from the region uh, when TPLF took control of governance in Addis back to early 1990s. So there are numerous historical aspects to it. But for the time being, the federal government and the Amhara region are content to prevent Tigrayan forces from 
having an outlet through Sudan. And for Tigrans, this is pretty much a must for various reasons that I mentioned. So I think so long as this contestation continues without being resolved, I think the insecurity in the region area would continue. In fact, not only affecting the two countries, and I think Eritrea will also be dragged to this calamity. The Tigrayans claim uh, Western Tigra is being now patrolled by a joint Amhara and Eritrean forces with some support from the federal army. And for Eritrea, on the other hand, even if actually it's denying uh, that uh, its forces are present in the area, they also argue that TPLF should be prevented from having an access through Sudan. So it's not only actually between Ethiopia and Eritrea, between Ethiopia and Sudan, but also for the greater Horn of Africa region. I think the implication would be huge and devastating if it continues unresolved. Thank you so much for the explanation, Abel. And maybe to to try and bring the the segment of somewhat to a conclusion, as yourself and Ahmed has mentioned, relations are what can only be described at current as tense. How can those differences that you have outlined between Ethiopia and Sudan be narrowed and in the end allow the relations between the two countries to improve? And what role do you think regional organisations need to play or not to de-escalate the situation? And by regional organisations, of course, I mean the AU and IGAD and the Gulf countries that have, you know, relationships with both of the countries themselves, especially in the transitional periods they find themselves in that current? Thank you. Uh, I think first and foremost, both countries need to understand that so long as this dispute continues unresolved, it will affect every aspect of uh, society, the economy and their capacity when it comes to uh, military uh, and other things. So I think there has to be a commitment in both capitals to resolve this issue peaceful and sustainable way. I think that important realization is a must. And second, not only regional mechanisms, but also international mechanisms needs to be applied. IGAD is being actually irrelevant due to the ongoing conversations between the two countries. As Ahmed mentioned earlier, Ethiopia's uh, former foreign minister is now the secretariat head, whilst uh, Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdo was supposedly uh, the head of uh, the IGAD Leadership Council. So now, the two countries having these issues is making actually IGAD more weak and unable to have any meaningful role whatsoever in this process. So I think that realization should grow into capacitating IGAD uh, to create a mechanism where it can help resolve these issues as it was the case actually in Somalia previously. And in line with that, the African Union needs to also play a role pretty much through the President Obasanjo mechanism that it has created recently. Uh, the President Obasanjo has been appointed as a Horn of Africa envoy, but it looked at the moment his only assignment is Ethiopia and specifically Tigray. I think there has to be a mechanism where uh, the former president needs to have a broader perspective when it comes to original problems, and which is actually, in our case, the problem 
between Sudan and Ethiopia. And the AU needs to uphold its responsibilities in bringing the two parties to a negotiating table. And in line with that, let's face it, the Gulf countries have a huge leaders in this part of the world, particularly uh, the Emiratis and the Saudis. So I think any initiative should uh, involve, understand and acknowledge uh, the role of the Gulf countries in general and these two countries in specific. So I think first and foremost, there has to be a realization and commitment in both countries and uh, that's where the regional uh, mechanisms and the regional continental and other mechanisms uh, should fill the gap in creating an atmosphere where the two countries resolve their issues peaceful and sustainable manner. Well, thank you, Abo, for those really fascinating answers. And it's been a real pleasure to, to have you on the pod with us again. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be invited. And that brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Please do subscribe to us on the platform you've been listening to us on, as it will help others find the podcast easier. Thanks for listening to Africa Where. I've been your host, Yusuf Hassan. Goodbye.